Hi listeners, we hope you and your loved ones are staying safe, healthy, and well. These past two weeks have shaken our country to its core. Are we truly in the land of the free? The murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other black people have heightened the awareness and global participation of the Black Lives Matter movement. In this episode, Billy and I will be engaging in the topic of race and racial justice. As two white men, Patrick and I recognize our limitations in understanding and being in true solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Each day we are striving to learn, unlearn, and reimagine what it means to be in solidarity and what it means to take action for a more equitable society. It's vital for white people to bring action in support of Black Lives Matter. It starts by doing your own research, reading books, listening to podcasts on race, white privilege, and police brutality, to point just a few important topics. Once you are informed, engage with people of color, and particularly black people, in building relationships and taking action together. Thank you listeners for being here, for clicking play, and putting in the time to learn more about racial injustice and to begin to unpack these deep complexities. Our guest today is Angela Smith. Billy and I met Angela at JVC's reorientation retreat, where she led several racial justice exercises. Angela is a licensed social worker, mental health therapist, entrepreneur, and adjunct professor at Pepperdine University. On her website, ahopesmith.com, she notes that she is a creator and conveyor of hope. Angela, thank you so much for again being on our podcast. Can you just share a little bit about your background just so listeners? I am Angela and it's very nice to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. I am born and raised in Southern California. I am my mother's first and my father's eighth. So there are some differences in, uh, in span of children. <laughs> uh, so I grew up as the oldest in my household. I have a little brother and a little sister. My little sister is adopted. Um, so I definitely grew up as the oldest. I went to Pepperdine University for undergrad and to San Francisco State for graduate school. Neither of those colleges had football teams. And I was homeschooled kindergarten through 12th grade like my whole upbringing so the concept like going to football games is still like wait what <laughs> because i never there was never any football teams yeah i live in los angeles i've always lived in california i studied abroad in argentina uh for three months in college that was amazing uh i quit my job i'm a licensed clinical social worker and love the social work field and quit my job about a year and a half ago because I had made plans to move to uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands because I went there and liked it and was like, why would I live here when I could live there? So I gave, I mean, it was, it was more, you know, that, those are like the, the, the simple points, but um, that idea of being able to go move away and practice in my same uh, counselor position, working at schools and getting to kind of create the life that I wanted gave uh, birth to this idea of if I can go to move to an island, then I can go anywhere. And if I can go anywhere, then I can do anything. So who do I want to be and where do I want to go and what is it going to, so it just, it birthed this, um, this adventure that has now fast forwarded me to being right back where I started a year and a half later. <laughs> so when I, uh, when I quit my job, I also sublet my apartment and I left, I left California, um, for about seven months and traveled and stayed with friends. And the plan was if it's still, if the spirit still moved to go, then I would go. And if not, then I would go where the spirit moved. So the spirit moved me right back here where I used to live. But it is a wonderful place to be, and I feel so, so blessed um, to have a home, and because I was moving around so much, and to move back in here in January, and then in March, be told that I can't go anywhere, uh, I am very glad that I have somewhere to be. So what that all looks like now is I am... Um, in the fall, in August, I will be full-time faculty at Pepperdine University, uh, serving as the social work director. 
I'll be teaching two social work classes and um, a freshman seminar class. And I am also a training consultant, so I'm able to put on some really neat uh, trainings. Everything looks so different as everything does with our whole world right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been able to kind of increase my tech skills, if you will, and do all of what I was doing before virtually. So doing trainings and meditations and different groups and stuff all online and trying to figure out how to make some community out of these screens. And among all of that is racial justice work kind of uh, integrated throughout because I am a person of color and come from a person of color in a land of colorful people. So it's good, good and important work to do. Angela, we, Billy, myself, our community, JVC, at least from the North Central region, we were first introduced to you uh, at reorientation uh, when you led several racial justice theme discussions and workshops with us shared a lot about just your interest and your passions specifically in that field. But yeah. um, just to the listeners, tell us a little bit more of like just your interest and your passion for uh, racial justice with your work and, and, and with all that, you know, all that you do. Can I do, can I, yes, but can I ask you guys a question first? Yeah. <laughs> and then I promise to answer your question. Yeah. My question is what stood out or what did you get from our talks? So kind of like answer your own, like you guys tell me what you think that I'm passionate about or how it fits based on what your interactions with that weekend were. I would first share that uh, what I love about how you do racial justice work and bring things to discussion into the table is just how everything is so rooted in like our relationships to each other mm. and how even that zoom call we had just taking the time to share how we're doing, how we're feeling. And just what you've shared is that in order to engage in the tough work that it is to have conversations around racial justice, like it's important to have that relationship and that foundation. And that's, the biggest thing that stuck out for me. For myself, like specifically uh, at Rio, there were two things. One was involved like an identity wheel activity when we all like went around and we had to, one, identify for ourselves, like where do we fall, like our national identity, our cultural, ethnic, racial, what are those identities for ourselves? Yeah. Questions about like, which identities do you think least about? Which identities do you think most about? Talking with in our um, small groups, that was really interesting. And like then breaking out as a large group, seeing the differences and like, and hearing people's personal experiences with like understanding their own identities and how they impact their own, their own values and this and that. Yeah, like what Billy was saying too, like I really echo the relationship uh, component that is really central to talking about, I think one, like a lot of really tough conversations. It can be race, it can be health concerns, it can be really anything. You, you have to build that relationship and build that trust. And I just remember the yeah, that racial justice discussion that we had with the North Central JVs and like this is the building block of a long and ongoing process of learning and um, accepting and continuing to go forward. So um, I, I'm so glad, like, yeah, you guys get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so interesting because I, I feel like I'm just showing up and I'm, and I'm talking and I'm being me. And so, and I'm seeing that this is God's work in me is that all I have to do is show up as me because as me, I have a whole diverse set of experiences, stories, examples, relationship, friends, degrees, academics, music, blah, 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 blah. there's like all of these different pieces that as I become, I think, 
both more free. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely able to operate professionally now in a way that I haven't, that has me being able to be a lot more free and have a lot more merging. So when I get to um, create a training and I get, okay, I get to decide how I want to present trauma-informed care for two hours, that's very different than like, I have to write a 15 page report that's identifying the social emotional issues with this student. Like that's very different sets of work. So over here, I'm like, ah, that's so fun. So because of my work, that's able to be a lot more free. But I think also because of my identity in Christ and finding really my like theological framework has done a lot of shifting, having more freedom in Christ and having having this acknowledgement of like, oh no, I really have to be me and I have to develop who I am. Who do I want to be? Where did I come from? How about blah, blah, blah. And as I step into who I've really always been, but with this like new kind of like, all right, well, God, if you say that I'm all of these things and these things are going to be for my good and for your glory, then I'm here. Let's rock with, let's see what we can make. And the more I do that, the more things come together. And I'm like, so you're telling me I can go to I can go to Tennessee and talk about things that I care about to people who I think really need to hear it. But I get to do it in a way that like combines like learning and faith and total discomfort sometimes because it's really uncomfortable because we live in a really uncomfortable world and we don't talk about like all of these things. That's like, okay, well, we got to like, do that and I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun. And God's like, yeah, yeah, this is what I made, this is what I made, made you for. That this is why all of these things connect. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'll show up again tomorrow, the next day. You know, I think it's really important to bring in, just bring your whole self to what you do and your life. And I think so many people struggle with that. Like I struggle with that and just knowing that you know, bring your belief in God, your, the theology that you come with into this work of racial justice and bringing that all together. I think that's really important. So I just admire you for, you know, the work that you've done and just bringing that all, just bringing your full self to us. And I think that really comes through when you uh, present. So thank yeah. you. So well, if that, you that's so good to hear because presenting is very new for me. Talking is not new. I've always been a talker, but taking a role that is posed as like an expert to train or teach or like that is kind of new. And also the doing it with this topic is also new. I did it last year um, and I've always, it's always been a part of what I've done in different ways. Um, but to be singled out as this is what I'm here to do, that is new. So one, it's nice to hear the like positive reception. And two, it, it let it be encouraging that what you see and the value is coming from me. And the more the wrestle is with ourselves and our own, if it's like insecurity or not processed stuff or we haven't seen it in the world. Like it's often were our own barriers because God is like, I know what I made you for. Like the world is really waiting for you to figure out how you can be. And that's fine. Cause like God, the timing will be what it is. Um, but I am happy to be an example of what I think we all can be. That sounds like so we all can be, but yeah, there definitely is freedom, freedom in Christ in that way when you're able to, to, be confident and 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 like what you're doing and then that reflected in the work that you're doing as well so so if we can dive into uh some more racial justice conversations yeah. some questions so i'd just like to ask not a simple question but just simply ask how would you define racism and i think it's just such an important question because the word gets thrown around a lot and I think it's a lot more complex than people realize when they're saying things on social media or when they're talking to their friends. And uh, personally, I just think it's something people often want to separate themselves from and that's not productive. And so, yeah, I'd just like to ask, how would you define racism? I, for me, it definitely includes power. Um, I would say really simply power over another person 
that that gets um, exercised in lots and lots and lots of different ways. The the you guys have heard. I, I think we might have talked about the idea um, of race being a construct. It's this it's this thing that we have chosen to be the thing that makes us different because we've chosen to put a value on that. Our eye color could be a really easy example of like, if we lived in a society where people with blue eyes got to live in, uh, live in the East Coast and everybody with not blue eyes lived on the West Coast, we would have a country that's divided by what people's eyes look like. Like that's if we decided that that was the ticket to how we are going to have power over people, it could be done that way. Cause guess what? Everybody has an eye color and everybody has a skin color. So there we go. Um, what I think is, is, is like you said, the complications and the it's, it's deep and it's new. There's so many different things is, um, is how, how we use race and, and what race has been, what race has been used um, for in our country. So we have done a really, really good job at um, at cleaning up our cleaning up our messes to where because the laws are different or the times are different or the people in power are different, um, we think that things are just different when we're not looking at like what's the root of of what it is. So like if I have a really, really old house right, that I give a really beautiful paint job to, I can, I can replace all of the, like, brassware and, like, do, redo my, like, I can do whatever pieces of the house I want to do, but if I'm, if I'm putting time and energy into a house that the foundation is, is rotten, Mm -hmm. and I'm not addressing the the holes or the termites or the lack of foundation or great like this house I'm rebuilding a house that was never built this is a great example I'm a freaking genius we're building a house we're redoing a house that never had plumbing in it it was never made for plumbing okay this house you own a house Billy but it never had plumbing in it and you just decided now we get to have plumbing. Cool. I'm going to go in. And you bought the bathtub and you bought the faucets and you, and you, it looks amazing. And we came in and we decorated and we painted it. And then you come in and you're like, where's my, wa- why isn't this working? Where's my water? Well, your house was never built for, for a bathtub. And you didn't go back to do the work to figure out how does this bathtub fit into a house that was never built for a bathtub? And that is how I view racism in our country. How do we fit into a white racist America with some black and brown folk that were never supposed to be here? Whose land we took and whose people we took. And now we're all here in a melting pot and it's all good because we got Obama and Oprah. And we're looking around like, where do we put the bathtub? And we never went back to be like, whoa, you had a whole house without some plumbing? Like it's 2020, Billy, and you built a house with it like, but nobody even recognizes the fact that nobody's houses have plumbing because everybody's in America and no houses were built. Like if we look at what they were built for, it actually very specifically said there will not be bathtubs allowed here. If you have a bathtub here, actually you'll die. If you look anything like a bathtub, we're going to kill. Oh, you're done. And, and, and we have this like adversity that we can't, we can't own because Billy, maybe you inherited that house that didn't have any plumbing. And now you live in 2020 where people have bathtubs and you're like, I don't get it. I have my house. I have my bathtub. What's wrong? It's 2020. Yeah, hello. Like, lots of bathtubs, lots of houses. And we haven't even begun to do the structural change work um, on a massive scale, at least that says like, oh yeah, we're going to put plumbing in all the houses. So what it looks like is people finally got some, the bathtubs are like, oh, the plate, oh, we need to tear it down. Oh, we need to build some new houses. Oh, we need to put some plumbing everywhere. Okay, well, we're going to, we're going to tear the house down. Because guess what? We've been bathtubs on the outside this whole entire time. 
And you've been confused why we're not here. And now everybody's confused. Why are the bathtubs not burning the houses down with no plumbing? And now the houses with, what are the houses with plumbing doing? That are like, okay, I'm a house. I have plumbing. Uh, I know what not everybody else does. So how can I, how can I tell people about like bathtubs and plumbing? And the people with the bathtubs are like, oh, we're going to help you. We have, we have some plumbing here. So we'll figure out how do we talk about our plumbing? Do we like share our, Do I have enough money to like buy you a house with some plumbing? Do I write a book about plumbing? Do I make a post about the plumbing that I have that I wish you had? Like, mm-hmm. what do we do? And people, the bathtubs are like, F this mess, man, we're going to, and you know, who's, you know, whose house we're going to burn down. And I don't know if you guys have heard you guys are with me, right? With the riots, we're like following the analogy. Yes. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. So in nine in the nineties with the Rodney King riots, um, protesters were this is one of the differences is that people were protesting and they were burning down their own neighborhoods and their own people. And what is different now is that the protests are in Santa Monica and they're in Beverly Hills and they're in rich white places where the bathtubs have found their way to the best looking non-plumbing places and are like, this is where we need to put the plumbing first. Yeah, because we've been bathtubs over there trying to be backed up and you guys have what looks like the best land for some new plumbing and some new houses perfect we'll be right here trying to make some houses for everybody because guess what it's 2020 and guess what we have access and ability to have water and plumbing for everybody we can we actually could have done that actually if we're really being honest there was no reason why houses never were built without plumbing except for the very fact that people said, I'm gonna build a house specifically for no plumbing because I don't want bathtubs and I don't want, I don't want anything that looks anywhere near. So I'm not only gonna build my house here, I'm gonna make laws against where you can build your house. And I'm gonna say bathtubs can't eat here, can't walk here. You're gonna be, if we can't, if we can't just enslave the bathtubs, then we'll at least keep them. And now we're to work, we've, We've done such a beautiful job of melting our bathtubs in our world that the bathtubs have been here like in the house without the water. Like, I'm pretty sure something's not right here. Like, this is not, where is the faucet? Like, what is, because we were in a house that we never were made for. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that many, many, many people of color would identify feeling similarly that they are in a world, in a state, in a country that was not made for them. And I think a lot of people who the country or the world or the state was made for, I think they would say, maybe it wasn't made for me, but it wasn't made for them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to so readily identify what it's like to be a bathtub. <laughs> like we can see, we can, we can see um, there was a professor who did that experience of like, stand up if you would like to be treated by an African-American, if you would like to be treated as an African-American by the police. If we have an equal justice system, just stand up if you would prefer to take that treatment, which is equal. And like nobody stood up because people know, people know the realities, just like kind of you said at the beginning, like people know this term of like racist or racism and we know it's bad and we know that we're, we don't want to be it and we know people who are it are bad but like we're not recognizing that we're living in the same bathtubless house that maybe just got some fresh paint on it because the house came from our parents and our parents' parents and our parents' parents. Well, that's a long, that's a long, uh, that's, that's, that's it. That's all. That's probably not all I wrote, but I got to take a break and take a drink. I've actually never heard of just the, of racism and of what you, have really just eloquently uh, detailed just like the housing analogy. I think that's really helps me better uh, articulate and better understand like, yes, like this country and just kind of what you said, like, you know, maybe this wasn't meant for me, but you know, if you look around, you know, sure that this was not meant for the bathtubs or people of color when you look at America and what I want to touch on now is you, uh, when you were describing uh, the housing analogy, just how you uh, talked about just like 
since we are in like different times, it is difficult for people to see like, oh, wait, like this like space doesn't have room for a bathtub like this, like because like we have made it through the Obama years and we have mm-hmm. Oprah, like you said, like, oh, we are like, we are. We told people. everyone that they have plumbing. Yeah. Everyone's like, your house has been updated. But so, <laughs> that, but yes, and we are, and we're laughing and like, we know this, but you know, it, it is, it is sad when it is like, there are millions of folks who believe that. Yes. Like we are, we are post-racial. Like I don't see yeah. any of yeah. this. And so my question comes during our racial justice discussion with like the North Central JVs, we talked about like an ally and we talked Mm -hmm. about what that is and what steps it takes, what the process is for being an ally Yeah. and touching on like how different people interpret the bathtub situation, interpret racism. What advice do you have both for younger generation and also for the older generation in terms of allyship? Is there like principles? What are the different processes for both generations to partner if they identify as an ally? I think if I had like, what is the process of being an ally? I think we would have more allies. Um, I think it's hard. I think an ally is, is being there when you don't have the answers or the questions. You're just there. I think being an ally for both the older generations and the younger generations is to listen without your own interpretation. To listen void of interpretation. Listen, you, you are listening to a, to a jazz ensemble, to an orchestra, you are not listening to um, to analyze. You're not reading a cookbook. So when you are listening to someone's story, to someone's experience, there is often because it's so uncomfortable and because we are so defensive. And I put so much little uh, nugget for micro and macro, or individual or systemic. We have things that are our individual responsibility and things that are um, the societal. I put a lot of weight on society. So when I say people are defensive, we're defensive because we as a society don't talk about it. So the fact that you get uncomfortable talking about race, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a lot of culture. That's a lot of society. Sure, there can be some individual ownership. Absolutely. And people do that. And that's the goal. But I can't start with somebody to say individual ownership. You shouldn't feel this way. I, but I can say our world is made up of defenses because we're taught not to talk about that. That can take somebody's defense from here to then maybe here. We have to figure out a way to disarm. The number one way to disarm that you don't even have to is by relationship. If I have a relationship with you, I'm not looking to be armed or disarmed. I'm looking to navigate those rough waters with you. Where it gets rough is do you still navigate the waters when these conversations come up? So that's a different, like having these conversations when you're already in relationship with someone is different and having conversations with new people, engaging with new information is different. So we kind of, the first, like you guys picked up on so much, I'm so relationship focused. So the first thing for any ally, where is the, do a relationship assessment first? Is there trust here? Do I know this person? Is it a stranger? Is it my auntie on Facebook? Is it so-and-so's cousin? Because I'm the one person of whatever color that they know that she found me to be the person that posts because they like so assessing relationship um listening listening for not listening void of interpretation um and i would also say a commitment uh, you said earlier um and on and i love this you said an ongoing process of learning and accepting I would say that being an ally is an ongoing process of learning and accepting. I would also add it's an ongoing process of unlearning, of unlearning and reimagining. What would it be like if whatever, what, like, what would it be like if this is a really powerful one? What would it be like? if this person's experience was true, 
what would it be like if if this was true for them but often our defenses go up because we can't hold conflicting truths i can't hold the truth of my god is good america is good and we are post-racial and also hold the truth of your reality that that's not true for you those cannot those can exist in the same spot so part of the process for both the older and the younger is the is the learning but we have to unlearn what was our initial framework what was the house we were born into what type of pipes do we have what what is our what is our framework to to how we are looking at race and society and stories because that is going if it doesn't fit in our framework we're going to reject it so we have to figure out how do we have a container or a framework that's big enough for the reality that i've been at for me my experience um i, I was raised in a in i never questioned my safety um we'll just leave it there my experience was i never i grew up in a safe i grew up in a safe america this person did not grow up in a safe America. I believe America is safe for all. You're telling me it's not. How do we think? So either I have to say, you don't exist. Your truth is not right. Get out of here, person that says America is not safe. Or I have to say, maybe everyone in America is not safe. Well, maybe every black person doesn't deserve to be shot by the cop. Whoa, if this is true, then I got to go back and look at me. And that's the part that is really hard and uncomfortable. And it's a lot easier to have the defenses go up and say, yeah, okay, that's just a perspective, or that's how somebody's interpreting it, right? This is their interpretation of their truth because I, it's, I don't have the tools going back to individual responsibility. I'm like, oh, we live in a world that was tough for you to not have the tools. Because guess what? We live in a white supremacist, we run our, our bones of our country. So of course we weren't given the tools to figure this stuff out. So it's like, okay, how do we accompany in the learning process of, okay, now if you're 12 and you're reimagining, you have 12 years of a framework that is different to unlearn. If you're 60, 30, 70, 50, and I've lived my whole 50 year old life having experiences that have just confirmed for me that, that we are post-racial and that uh, black people can go to school if they want to, and that brown people can learn Spanish if they want to, and we have equal, and your world has confirmed that, you're not gonna be able to see the truths out here. You can, you gotta do a lot of work because what's gonna come way more true is your realities that have been confirmed for 50 years versus this already on the margins, probably, maybe not that close of a relationship. So there's a lot of pieces, but for the ally, for the ally piece specifically, it when you get, you don't have to be there long to see how deep you have to go individually to have it really be a part of the work. And a, a lot of people don't, don't want to, don't choose to. Going back to the house analogy, it's like, it's just how sometimes it's also the, how the house is built and how our country is built. It's how so much it's we have hard. my dad was born in 1938 mm -hmm. my dad was born into a segregated america like he's still alive this wasn't that long ago when we talk about having to reimagine now everybody needs a new house okay well we we said so there's a man brian stevenson if i haven't talked about him he wrote the book just mercy the movie just mercy came out last year. phenomenal phenomenal story man book all of it great the equal justice initiative but brian stevenson said in a lecture that i got to be at he was like america if you go to germany you see memorials of the holocaust every two blocks there is a remembrance and a mourning and a recognition of this is our history this is part of, of our country and we see it and we know it and the world knows it. What do we see in America like that that looks like native lands or that looks like history for slavery? Mm -hmm. We don't see that. So Brian Stevenson says we celebrated too quickly here where it was like, okay, voting rights done, civil rights done, kids in school done, black, like here's these things and, and our, our minds and our reimagining has not, begun to have time to match the forward progression 
So people say that when our latest president got elected, there was a there was a, a a accessible way to see the lack of progression when it was able to see okay where it where does our country stand really um and and we've seen i don't know if we've been more racially to i think we've always been a pretty racially tense country and if you don't think that then look at who's telling the story um so how where we are at now is very um reflective of these pieces but yeah set like our mindsets if they haven't caught up to our new houses then we may have some conflict which i believe we have now yeah and even hearing about the the way that in germany just looking at history and about other things you shared i just think so much of it is just so uncomfortable for so many people and how you talked about earlier, like how power has a role in this and who's telling the story. Yeah, I just want to share with you this quote that I think of that really kind of captures a lot of things you're saying. It's uh, Darnell Moore is an author, but uh, is also just really involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, he wrote this incredible book and this line really sticks with me. And it's, uh, he says, so often our love is reserved for those who don't disrupt our comfort. And so I think about that a lot and just like, just even as people, like who do we choose as friends? Who do we choose to keep in our lives? Mm -hmm. And how does that inform our own understanding of current situations? If we can move into talking a little bit about what's happening now and most recently, just with like, you know, in the past few months, we've seen a lot of police brutality and most recently with George Floyd and now we've seen this response in rioting. And so I wanted to touch uh, social media. And I think even with like coronavirus, it's just been so, you know, we're not seeing our friends as much as we used to and even our colleagues. And so I've just been seeing a lot of people sharing just various things. And, you know, some people who might call themselves progressives are saying, oh, rioting's not the way to do this. We need to be nonviolent with our actions. And then, you know, a lot of times those people are white folks saying that. And I'm just seeing, you know, a lot of friends sharing these things on social media. You know, I think going back to how relationship is so foundational to racial justice work, I think that's like totally lost. Like the relation, you can't have a conversation relationally on social media. So yeah, I'd just like to ask if you can kind of touch on what's happening right now with the response to the police brutality we've seen. I was part of a group last night and we were able, we, it was called Process the Protest. Um, and we were able to engage in a really neat dialogue and it was, uh, yesterday was May 31st, so the person who did the political portion um, drew our attention back to May 31st in 19, I believe she said nine, 99 years ago, so 1919, that there was an incident where a black man was accused of saying something to a white woman and that resulted in the entire neighborhood of that black man being burned down and surrounding areas. Um, they posted where he lived in the media, in the newspaper. So this person um, said this story to say that this isn't, this isn't new. Protests aren't new. Police brutality isn't new. Police brutality uh, people brutality like like so so in in the frame it's kind of like the does the you know are are these protests justifiable or like do we agree do we condone them do we i i think that is so far the wrong question we are seeing a response to horrible injustice that should never be it should never be one time so the response, I, I don't know. Let's stop the problem and not have a response that's controversial. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we reframe and 
the role of the media, I had a little post that I've posted everywhere, but I have one that says media is the fifth branch of government. And the control that the media has on the people simply by being the main point of exposure and choosing what gets shown. Um, a wonderful and horrible example of this is all of the lives that we are seeing so brutally taken by the police and we are not seeing other lives. There are trans lives, people, trans women, trans men who do not get the publicity because we do not value those lives as we do other lives. And the media gets to play a role in who and what we value. If a white woman was need to death by an officer, we would have a response far different than what we have. And we would have a question that is not a question in response to, why are you doing what you did to kill that white woman? It would be, why did you kill that white woman and how are we fixing this problem? So we do not value lives the same. And again, with the discomfort, I think we have to name that explicitly. I just read a statement from um, the school that I work at from the president, and it was a beautiful statement. It said something like, we will not rest. We will not rest until justice is done or something. And, and, and oh my God, if that was true. Like, I'm like, get out of here. We, we are, there's not like, Justice for all, it's not true. We can say we live in a country that values some lives over others and we would like to get better. We live in a country where we have an ex extremely differential treatment of justice system and criminal justice system. We can say that, but when we say these, these and I think this is very true in the spiritual uh, world as well, we say these beautiful God-centered prayers and laments and they are so unrealistic and not helpful mm -hmm. and 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 we get to choose what we say and what we listen to and i'm so thankful that there are thought leaders who are who are different who are faith thought leaders who are progressives who are um leading protests and social justice movements in incredibly incredibly radical jesus ways so we could have a whole podcast on like the church's response and how that varies in our bodies of faith because it's it's such a point of conversation but it's just even how i'm thinking of i have watched the news so little i've watched i've been on instagram so little because i'm not it's not helpful to me and it doesn't put me at a at a point where i am able to uh have a positive experience with my emotions. So I just don't engage. I do what I need to do, but that's a very like uh, off-put self-care. But the little bit that I have seen, it's been not amazing. I try to be less amazed because a friend said, we live in a country where slavery was a go. Like, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that for as long as we can. We live in a country where enslaving people was a go. So what makes us think that we wouldn't do this or that or have this in our pot like we this was our standard we live in a country where we had animal right laws before we had child abuse laws the first child abuse laws came out of new york's new york state and they were modeled after animal cruelty laws we have a pretty look look at look at what businessmen make look at what police and teachers make like you can look at our country and see what we value so when we i so all of that it's a little tangent to say i it helps me to no longer be surprised when i hear things or when i see things so while it wasn't surprising to hear in the news how much they were talking about the looting and how they are trying to get every interview to answer the question is it wrong do you think it's wrong what do we think about these people are we supporting it oh well what do you think about the small business well, what do you think about the? and it's like yeah, I would love to never see another protest again. I would be wonderful because that would mean that the protesting me me demands have been met. And the protesting demands in this case is let's value human life. Mm -hmm. Let's not be killed on broad television in daylight with people watching. Oh my God, like that's like, that's the world that we live in. That's what we're protesting against. So when we have the conversations, 
because it looks like people making a choice. I'm making a choice to go protest and it's getting very confusing who's looting and who's protesting. We need to be very clear. That line is getting blurred as, again, it should. If the media is a fifth branch of government, if the media gets to show what gets seen, if the media has never been on the sides of oppressed or poor people of color, why would they not show the looting? Why would they not show the horror and the mean and the outrage and look what this, like, it, make, it makes sense. So, so things are moving pretty much how they, I think a lot of people might say we're designed to move and have always moved. So when we're, when we're saying enough is enough, I mean, why did slavery end? People said enough was enough. We're not gonna do this anymore. Why do wars happen? Why is our military defense budget so incredibly high? Because we believe that sometimes things need to happen. So when we look at the things happening from people who are in a very oppressed state, who look like people that are black and brown, who look like people that the house was never really built for, well, yeah, that type of pushback and that type of, you know, we need to do that type of change, you know, we don't really like it. But if we're talking about violence and we're talking about like our military spending budget in comparison, the, the person last night said, how, how did we have not money to support our hospital workers with, with, with appropriate PPE and masks, but we had 24 hour national guard at a second to be here to, to make sure the peace is kept. And um, and that it's, those are just points. Like, I, I don't know, it, it seems like there is a, a disparity. We know there's a disparity, we own it. What we have been doing, I don't think has been working or else we wouldn't see people being shot and killed by the police in broad daylight. So there's still a problem, I think we can say, so what do we do? And if it's not this, wonderful. Let's do something. Oh, let's do some. Oh, let's wait for another one and another one and another one. And okay, well, pretty soon some shit's going to need to burn down. In the media, there is this, especially with uh, like with the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, like the narrative is about like making sure we are keeping the peace. And like we hear like mayor, uh, like the mayor of Minneapolis, he was like, we need, we need everybody to be peaceful. Yeah. Like, you know, we need all of us to come in this together and they're downplaying like the significance of the protests. The Why do you think? And part of it is who is writing these articles. It's coming from the perspective of like, these are lawless groups coming in, destroying property. When you look at maybe one, the store, like for example, like targets have been looted. Targets have exploited millions of people and workers and there's that side of it but it's also like these are targeted to send messages for the people and groups to stand up for a government for a city that has continuously for decades since the country's birth has constantly neglected them it is the people standing up for themselves when nobody else it is looking like is doing that and we have known that that is what i see and it's also like hypocritical in a lot of ways when you have like these big newspaper uh newspapers talking about like oh like we have to like not you know riots and protesting is like and i don't want to like glorify like violence i don't want to like say like violence is the answer however it's hypocritical for these newspaper companies media outlets to be talking about riots and protests in such a negative light for this justice when you have with our military like you're saying we have the u.s going into hundreds of other countries saying that we need to police them and we need to go into them because they are not abiding by our code it's just it there is this hypocrisy that like that i am really now like starting to understand especially with what's going on and seeing it it is powerful like you said to be an ally and like from my like I, I identify myself as an ally however like the process of being an ally like it is protest will continue much like in life we, we will continue 
to better and improve with whatever it is we do. And the same approach needs to be taken to be an ally. We have to unlearn and rewire and reimagine like you are saying. And it is hard. You share that you were grateful for just even amidst so much of the hate that is going around that you were just, that you're grateful for some of these faith leaders, some of these progressive leaders around the country that are just leading some of these movements. Can I just ask if you can share like a couple people who you really like look to and who are kind of like leading some of these uh, movements? Pastor Michael McBride. Pastor Michael McBride is a pastor of the Way Berkeley in California, but he is fantastic. Pull up Eideline. Um, she is a activist and protest and she she's definitely on the ground. Um, Eideline mm-hmm. Bobby. Um, she's a human rights defender and social justice movement person. Yeah, those are some, those are a couple of people that, that come to mind. So again, like we've known you uh, since reorientation started, you will be continuing with your assistance and leadership with JVC. Can you tell us how you got in touch with JVC? I volunteered for a couple of years at uh, Homeboy Industries. So Homeboy Industries is amazing in Los Angeles. I was a volunteer therapist there and I saw clients who uh, for part of their program voluntarily, excuse me, participated in uh, therapy and I volunteered my time. So it was wonderful. And there I met uh, a wonderful man by the name of Marcos Gonzalez, who I believe at that time was on the board at JVC um, and just through my uh, relationship with him. He had asked if I would consider uh, going to Rio last year, two two Rios ago. Um, so that was my real kind of first connection with JVC specifically was connected with the Jesuits um, and their work mostly through Homeboy. Yeah, got was asked to go two years ago and was asked to come back and that was wonderful. And then have now uh, in working with, was just emailing with Tom earlier today to um, kind of get figure out what, what my role will be um, moving forward, but definitely want to stay integrated as much as I can in the racial justice work. We thank you, yeah, Angela, for just diving into some heavy conversation with us. And we asked the same, we asked this question of all of our guests, and it comes out of a quote from Thomas Merton. Quote, if you want to identify me, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair, but ask me what I am living for in detail, ask me what I think is keeping me from fully living for the thing I want to live for. So we would like to ask you uh, if you could just respond to what are you living for? Mm, I'm living for freedom and liberation for all. Yeah, yeah, for myself, because if I'm not free, then what can I do for anyone else? So I am finding freedom daily when I can stay in tune and I feel very aligned with what I'm doing with my life and my time and that feels awesome. and it's absolutely so that everyone who wants to can have the choice to feel that as well. Um, and that's not the world that we live in. So I am living for that opportunity for myself and for absolutely everyone who chooses to have it so that it can be a choice for everyone. I would love to share a lament. It's a beautiful uh, reading prayer by a woman named Dr. Yolanda Reverend Pierce. Okay, so this is, this was written, I believe, in 2014, Mm. and I think it's extremely relevant and beautiful, so I'm going to read it, and to your listeners, if they are comfortable, you guys are welcome to close your eyes um, as well as we, as I read this litany for those who are not ready for healing. Let us not rush to the language of healing before understanding the fullness of the injury and the depth of the wound. Let us not rush to offer a band-aid when the gaping wound requires surgery and complete restructuring. Let us not offer false equivalencies 
thereby diminishing the particular pain being felt in a particular circumstance, in a particular historical moment. Let us not speak of reconciliation without speaking of reparations and restoration, or how we can repair the breach and how we can restore the lost. Let us not rush past the loss of this mother's child, this father's child, someone's beloved son. Let us not value property over people. Let us not protect material objects while humans' lives hang in the balance. Let us not value a false peace over a righteous justice. Let us not be afraid to sit with the ugliness, the messiness, and the pain that is life in community together. Let us not offer cliches to the grieving, those whose hearts are being torn asunder. Instead, let us mourn the black and brown men and women and trans men and women and gender non-binary people who are killed every 28 hours. And if we add more people and identify not people as just men and women, but as individuals, that is higher than every 24 hours. Let every 28 hours, let us lament the loss of a teenager dead at the hands of a police officer who described him as a demon. Let us weep at a criminal justice system which is neither blind nor just. Let us call for the mourning men and the wailing women, those willing to render their garments of privilege and ease and sit in the ashes of this nation's original sin. Let us be silent when we don't know what to say. Let us be humble and listen to the pain, rage, and grief pouring from the lips of our neighbors and friends. Let us decrease so that our brothers and sisters and people who live on the underside of history may increase. Let us pray with our eyes open and our feet firmly planted on the ground. Let us listen to the shattering glass and let us smell the purifying fires, for it is the language of the unheard. God, in your mercy, show us our complicity in injustice. Convict us for our indifference. Forgive us when we have remained silent. Equip us with a zeal for righteousness and never let us grow accustomed or acclimated to unrighteousness. Amen. Thanks again for listening and tuning in to JBC. Patrick, I'm really inspired, and I think it's so wonderful that there is this yearning in this country to learn more about race and to understand racial justice and even to get out in the streets to protest and to march against the systems of injustice and against police brutality. And I want to acknowledge that we must be persistent in this, in engaging with race, and that we must sustain these conversations in the coming months and years. Billy and I, and white people listening, need to recognize our complicity in the systems of injustice that we are speaking of. That line the prayer Angela shared stays with me. Let us decrease so that our brothers and sisters and people who live on the underside of history may increase. That line also resonated with me. And I think this fight is against a society, against the system that values whiteness over blackness and other people of color. And especially for white people to recognize, for us to win this fight, to make any real progress or any real real change, we must acknowledge that in some ways we have to loosen our grip on many privileges that we have and that we hold. And some privileges that we can't consciously know or understand that we are benefiting from. This fight has to come with the recognition that life will 
and that life needs to look different for everyone, and that those who benefit at times from these injustices must decrease to allow others to increase. If you want to continue the conversation with Billy and I, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, make sure to like our social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We acknowledge that our opinions belong to us and are not directly affiliated with the views of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Till next time.